Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I'm going to be sharing with you this morning from, for the, for the last time, um, now in, from the life of, of Elijah. I've been sharing quite a few um, thoughts from Elijah's life from 1 Kings. And uh, this is going to be the last one. So we're going to read from 1 Kings 19 in a little moment. But before we do, I just want us to pray. So if, <clears throat> if you feel comfortable with that, please turn to someone next to you. And I just want us to quickly pray together. And I, what I want you to do is, uh, let's, let's just pray that God will help us to open our hearts and really receive what He has for us this morning. Um, to really be open, not only willing to receive from Him, but eager to receive what he has for us and, 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 and what he wants to share with us. So just, just turn to one another and pray for two or three minutes and just, um, ask God to, yeah, just, just say, God, we open up our hearts to you, just in your own words. Yes, Father God, we just come to you this morning in Jesus' name and we thank you, Lord, that we can come with boldness, that we can come, Lord God, with an expectation, Lord God. Even as you say in your word, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in, in their midst. And, and we have gathered here in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are here. Lord, and we just come and open up our hearts to you and say, Lord Jesus, have your way in us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray, Lord, for all resistance to crumble, Lord God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, Lord God, that you rule, Lord, not only over the natural realm, but over the spiritual realm, Lord, and therefore we command every knee to bow to you in Jesus' name. We, we pray, Lord, that every demonic stronghold that wants to try and resist your work, Lord, will be broken. Every yoke of heaviness that wants to keep people in bondage will be broken. Every deception, Lord, that wants to blind our eyes, Lord, and close our ears to your truth, Lord, will be removed in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, that you will come and speak to us this morning. Speak, Lord, your, your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um... We all want purpose in life. I mean, that, I'm sure that's true for everyone because if you just consider the, the opposite of purpose and meaning, meaninglessness, <laughs> no one wants that. <laughs> Who wants a life that is meaningless? Who wants meaninglessness in life? No one wants, wants purpose. No one wants meaningless in life. Everyone wants purpose in life. But the problem is so often we don't want what comes with the purpose. We want the purpose, but we don't want to pay the price for the purpose. Or we, we want the purpose, we don't, but we don't want to live with the implications and the consequences of the purpose. It's like, a little like, like, a, um, like a, a young boy who wants a puppy, but doesn't want to take care of it. Right? Or, or, or someone who wants a good job, but doesn't want to study hard or work hard for the job. And so often we like that with purpose. We want the purpose. We like that. But we don't want com- what comes with it so much. Um, and this passage that we're going to read this morning is all about purpose and calling. It's about the calling of Elisha by Elijah. And here we have a young man who really responds in an exemplary way to the calling of God on his life. And there's so much that we can learn from this. So, so let's jump in and, and read 1 Kings 19 from verse 15 to 21. should be up on the screen. There we go. It says, and the Lord said to him, that's to Elijah. Remember, this is uh, when Elijah, he'd had that great victory on Mount Carmel, called the fire down from heaven, prayed, and it actually rained after three and a half years of drought. Uh, then he went back, you know, ran, outran Ahab's chariot all the way back to Jezreel, thinking that this was going to be the great victory. And then Jezebel turned around and she heard what had happened and, and threatened him, threatened his life and said, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, she actually called down a curse on him by our gods. May the gods, you know, because she, clearly she hadn't converted like he'd expected she would. May the gods do to me, uh, you know, th- this and worse if, if I don't make your life like one of the prophets, the prophets of Baal that you killed. And um, so he runs into the desert and he, 
he, he falls into a serious depression, and we looked at that in previous weeks, uh, and how tenderly and gently God deals with him in his depression. And then he goes to Mount Oreb, the mountain of God, and you know the wind comes by that, that shakes the mountain and breaks the rocks, but God's not in the wind. Then the earthquake, then the fire, but God's not in them. And then the, the gentle whisper, the still small voice. And we looked at all, the, all of that in, in previous weeks. And, and one of the things that Elijah said was, I'm the only one left. Twice he says it. I'm the only one left. And then God says to him, no, you're not the only one left. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed, uh, kissed Baal. <clears throat> in other words, who are not serving him and who are not worshipping him. I've reserved 7,000. And my plan for you is that you not be the only one left. And, th- and that's where, where it falls in here. In verse 15, it says, The Lord said to, to Elijah, Go back the way you came. Just Let me interrupt myself there just for a moment. Um, there, there's this theme, this, this repeated theme of where people, including God, as we see here, say, Go back. And I, I must be honest with you, I'm not, I haven't quite figured out what the theme and what this this pattern means. But on the mountain, when Elijah's praying for rain, he sends his servant, he says, look towards the sea. What do you see? And he says, nothing. And he says, go back. Seven times he says, go back. And here, God says to Elijah, go back the way you came. And we're going to see later on, Elijah says to Elisha, when he says, can I go back and, you know, kiss my mom and dad goodbye. He says, go back, you know, what have I done to you? Um, and I, I know there's, there's more to it than, than meets the eye. The, the author wouldn't repeat that theme so often if, if there's not really something to it. Um, one of the things is, it's as though God is calling Elijah back to something he had done before. Because remember, he'd left, left his servant, his staff, behind in Beersheba when he, when he went into the desert and when he went to sit underneath a broom tree and Pray that he might die, you know. So he'd left, and, and he said, I'm the only one left, you know. So he'd, he'd left all community and all ministry assistants and, you know, all friends and all, all of that he'd left behind. And God's saying, go back, you know. You say you're the only one left, but you're not. Go back, you know, to fellowship. Go back to community. Go back to the people that you've left behind. Go back, and then he says, anoint three different people. So he says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And uh, when you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. He was a Gentile. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, uh, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. And then I will come with you and go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And um, just a, f- a few things that we, that we see here. Um, we see the great need for calling, the, the true nature of calling, and then the right response to calling. The great need for calling, the true nature of calling, and then the right response to calling. So, firstly, the, the great need for calling. Um, from both Elijah and Elisha's side, there is a great need for the calling of God. Firstly, Elijah, Elijah thought that the climax of his ministry was going to be the miracles that he did so spectacularly, like calling fire down on Carmel, praying for rain and all that. He thought that that was going to be the climax of his ministry. But God was saying to him, no, the climax of your ministry is not going to be the miracles that you do so spectacularly, but the people you raise up so unspectacularly. 
that's going to be the climax of your ministry. That's going to be the fulfillment of your ministry. And that's such an important lesson for us. That's how things work in the kingdom. In other words, here's the point. Elijah needed Elisha's calling to fulfill his. In other words, Elijah couldn't fulfill his calling without Elisha's calling. Turn to the person next to you and say to them, you need other people to fulfill your calling. That's really important. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that I can be the only one left and fulfill my calling. And God said, it's never like that in the kingdom. You need other people to fulfill your calling. Your calling depends on other people's callings. Elijah's calling depended on that of Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And without their calling and their anointing, he would not fulfill his. And so often in our humanness and in our self-centeredness, our natural self-centeredness and self-absorption, we think we can do everything by ourselves, but we never can. And by the way, this is as true um, for, say, business as it is for ministry. It's always just like it's better in the kingdom to not do, just do everything yourself, but to raise up others who can do it with you. So it's true in, in business. I mean, so many people have almost an exclusive focus on production in business. They value production, the bottom line. There's nothing wrong with that. Un- unless you don't also value people. You see, what, what, what this passage is saying, and what we know from experience, is that it's important, whether in ministry or in business, to value both people and production. To value both the team and the task. Because it's the team that accomplishes the task. The stronger the team is, the better you can do the task. And you can actually do the task in such a way that it builds the team. I call it team-task synergy. There's a synergy between team and task. There's a synergy between people and production. And that's what this, what, what God is reminding Elijah of, that Elijah forgot. He, think, he thought he could be a team of one. And there's only been one team of one that was successful in the history of mankind. And that was one who hung on the cross. And the only reason why it was a team of one is because no one else could do it with him. But for the rest of us, we're always going to be part of a bigger team. God calls us to be part of a deep, bigger team. So Elijah thought the climax of his ministry would be the miracles he did so spectacularly. But they turned out to be the people that he anointed so unspectacularly. Um, Elisha also clearly needed the calling. So Elijah needed Elisha's calling, but Elisha needed Elisha's calling. And, you know, one of the ways in which we see it here is, look at what Elisha is doing when Elijah arrives on the scene. He looks for Elisha. He finds him. Elisha, firstly, just as a little bit of a aside, is busy plowing. Now, This rings so true to me. Remember, there had been three and a half years of drought. The last thing you do in a drought is plow because the ground is dry and hard and nothing's going to grow. Okay? But the first thing you do when the drought is broken is you plow because the the ground is wet and soft and there's rain and it's going to grow. And, you know, just... Sort of as an aside, this, this sto- story clearly is not just a made-up story. You know, it, it's like every other account in the Bible. It just rings true. You know, this is exactly what you would expect people to do if the drought had indeed been broken, and if the story this far, thus far, had indeed been true. Um, but he's busy plowing. But notice what it says. It says he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth. That means that this young man was very rich. Twelve yoke of oxen. A yoke was a, you know, a wooden thing. Jesus was a carpenter. He probably made yokes. You know, and that's why he says, take up my yoke, which is easy, and my burden, which is light. But a yoke was this wooden thing that bound two oxen together so you could plow with them. And then you had, you know, 
the ropes and stuff, and then you, you had this shear, this plowing shear. In those days, just had one, one blade, which you dug into the ground, and then the oxen pulled it, in, and you plowed a, a furrow in the ground. And you know, having two oxen to plow with, you know, you would probably, you know, quite well off. But having 12 yoke of oxen, you had to be very rich to have 12 yoke of oxen. So he clearly came from a very rich family. But in the end of the story, he actually burns the yoke and uses the wood of the yoke to cook the oxen. He doesn't ask his dad for permission to do it. So clearly these oxen weren't his, just his family's oxen. They were his. He could do with them what he wanted to. So he was a very rich young man, Elisha. And yet, when Elijah throws his cloak over him and symbolically calls him, immediately he leaves everything behind to follow, to, to run to Elisha and say, I'm with you. I'm going to follow you. Why would Elisha, who had all that wealth, he had servants, many servants, serving him, um, he clearly was from a rich family who had status in the community. He had security with that wealth and, and, and that family. Why would he leave all of that behind to follow a prophet who for the last couple of months, or couple of years has been you know, a fugitive? It says in, in, in chapter 18 that King Ahab has been looking everywhere for him to try and kill him. Eli, uh, you know, what's his name? Jezebel has just put a, a, a price on his head and, and, and tried to put a hit on him. Why would he leave all of that behind? Power for weakness. Riches for poverty. Security for vulnerability. Why would he leave all of that behind? Because all of that by itself is not enough. That's why, I mean, th- th- those things are not bad, of course. The text is not saying, telling us that those things are bad. But those things by themselves are not enough. He wanted purpose. He wanted a calling. And in his case, he had to give up those things in order to fulfill his calling. And he was not just willing to do that. He was eager to do that. And it shows us, like anyone was saying in the offering, that all the things in the world will not satisfy us apart from God, apart from relationship with Him, and apart from the purpose that He has on our life. And, and you know, postmodern people who are so materialistic are really struggling with this. Because there are so many young people who think the physical world is all there is. There's nothing else. There's nothing more. People so often no longer believe in God as Creator. But the problem is, if there's not a creator, there's no purpose. You know, think, think of, of it just for a moment. If evolution were true, and we, are the, we were the product of random natural processes, can random natural processes produce purpose and meaning? No. The only way you can have purpose, and I can have purpose, is if we are created as a means to an end. That's important, okay? You cannot have purpose means that you are a means to an end. And that end is your purpose. So only something that is a means to an end, a tool, an instrument to accomplish something can have a purpose. That means God doesn't have a purpose. Because God was not created and He is not a means to an end. He is the end Himself. Have you ever realized that God doesn't have a purpose? That's an interesting thought, right? But we have a purpose because God created us as a means to an end. And that end is to glorify, the ultimate end is to glorify Him in whatever we do. And that's why so many people struggle with purpose and it's such a tension in modern people's hearts because on the one hand, modern people are desperate for purpose. And I mean, that's why books like The Purpose Driven Life sell tens of millions of copies because people are desperate for purpose. But on the other hand, people say, oh, they want 
The highest value in our society is ultimate freedom. And specifically, in technical terms, ultimate negative freedom. In other words, freedom from any hindrances, freedom from any attachments, freedom from anything that will hold me back to do what I want. Now, the problem is you cannot have ultimate purpose and absolute freedom at the same time. In order to have ultimate purpose, you have to give up the absolute freedom of saying, I'm the boss of my own life. I am the end of everything. And make yourself a means to an end. And so many modern people are not willing to do that. And you know what the problem is? Everything in your life fails if you try and maintain absolute freedom in your life. Because why would you, why would you get married? What possible motive can you have, to, for instance, to get married and, and have your relationships work if you are the ultimate end of everything, if, if, if you're pursuing ultimate freedom? And so many young people, I mean, I, I heard this um, quote from a, a young man who was writing uh, in the... Uh, in, in, I think it was in the New York Times or so, and it was a very secular, uh, very liberal, postmodern young man, and he, and he was saying, I figured out, you know, why, after my, my girlfriend and I broke up, you know, after years of a relationship, that it wasn't, you know, because of sex or because of pre- the pressure of jobs or because of, um, you know, personality differences or, you know, whatever else. It wasn't any of these things. It was our inability to imagine a future together. Because we just, we don't have any purpose. And, and therefore we cannot connect. And, and, and we ended up, because we make ourselves the end instead of just a means to an end, we end up just using each other. We can't help it. Our worldview drives us there. Inevitably. And that's why we need purpose, and specifically God's purpose for which he created us. Because if we don't have it, and, and this seems sort of counterintuitive, and, and, it, and it, you know, if, you, if you just look at it superficially, but nothing else in your life will actually work unless you have this purpose, unless you're willing to give up the freedom of being your own boss, of being the ultimate end of everything, and make God the ultimate end, and you a means to, to an end. If you don't have that purpose, nothing else in your life will work. You will have no significant, compelling motive for everything else in your life. And ultimately, things will just fall apart. Things will just fall apart. So, Elijah, Elisha himself needed the purpose, just like we do. Um, but then Israel also needed <laughs> Elisha's calling in order for God's plan in Israel to be fulfilled. And what I want you just to notice is that that calling is not something that you do. Do you see that here in the text? Elisha was not... He he did not accomplish his calling. He received his calling. Calling is not something you do. Calling is something that is done to you. It's something you receive. And... And that brings us to the true nature of our calling. And our calling, um, just three things I want to highlight. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but just three things I want to highlight as the true nature of our calling. Our calling is divinely initiated, it's divinely empowered, and it's universal in scope. So first, let's just quickly look at those things. It's divinely initiated. Um, it's, it's a bit strange. In, in, you know, The Bible has this economy of scale. It says... A lot in very few words. Now, I wish I had the skill to write that well. But <laughs> it says Elijah comes and he puts his cloak over Elisha. And then in the next verse it says, Elisha ran after him. He left the oxen and stuff and ran after him. And, and then they start this conversation. That means Elijah must have come, put the cloak over him and walked on. <laughs> you know, just put the cloak and then just go on, you know. He didn't stop. And, and, and then Elisha runs after him. And he says, you know, can I go and kiss my mom and dad goodbye? Um, and then I'll come and follow you. And notice what Elijah's response is. Because it's a little bit confusing if you, if you just read it the first time. He says, go back. What have I done to you? It sounds like he's saying, you know, you know, 
What are you following me for like a little puppy, you know? Go back, you know? I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't, it sounds superficially like you meant, I didn't mean anything by putting my cloak on you. But that's, that's not what it means. Here's the point. That Elijah clearly understood calling better than we do. He put the cloak, he put his cloak over Elisha. But he knew that it wasn't his calling on Elisha. He says, go back. What have I done to you? In other words, this is not between me and you, Elisha. This is between you and God. This is between you and God. And that's what it says in the, in the, in the first few verses that we read. It says, go back, uh, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. Uh, and there you will anoint Hazael, king of Aram. And then he says, also anoint Jehu. And then he says, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. God tells Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him. Just as a little aside, God is always trying to work you out of a job. God's always trying to get you to anoint your own replacement. Because then he can promote you. (laughs) Create a new job for you. But God had a calling on Elisha before Elijah even knew about Elisha. Can you see the divine initiative in Elisha's calling? God is the one taking the initiative. God is the one saying, Elijah, you're going to anoint Elisha. Um, so, I've, I've experienced this. I mean, just... In, 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 I see it in scripture, but I, I see it in my own experience as well. For instance, uh, last year, uh, we'd been sort of building up towards launching the, the, the Shofar Santon congregation for a while. You know, two, two or a bit more than two years ago, we had like once one worship evening a, a month and then f- for a year and then for another year, we had two, two a month. And then in August last year, we, we, we launched and, and we, we planted the church. And we started with weekly services. But before that, God had really laid on my heart to speak to, to Stefan and Lauren Cronier to, to lead the, the plant. And, you know, I, I discussed it with them and, and I told them I felt, you know, uh, you know, they are the right people for the job. And I, and I, you know, encouraged them with what I saw their gifting was, etc. and, and, and how I really saw um, the anointing of God on their lives and so on. But the, and they were sort of listening and, mm, yeah, okay, you know, we're going to have a baby, you know, sort of six weeks after that or, or, that, or six weeks before that who's going to be six weeks old when, when, we, when, we, when we want to plant the church. And, you know, Stefan was saying, I'm still working. And, and Lauren says, you know, I'm going to have like a, a two-year-old and a six-week-old baby, you know. <laughs> I'm not so sure about this. You know, this is like serious. <laughs> you know, planting a church in this, those circumstances. But then God spoke to them. They prayed and God said, yes, this is what I've called you to do. I want you to take responsibility for those people. And they, then they said yes to me. And then I had peace too, because then I knew they weren't responding to my call. They were responding to God's call. They weren't responding as though I was the one giving them the calling. It wasn't between me and them. It was between them and God. And now I know they're leading that church, and they know that their ultimate accountability and responsibility is not towards me, but towards God. Because those aren't my people. Even though I'm the senior pastor, they're not my people, they're God's people. And the same when Rochelle and I came up to, to Joburg a bit more than three years ago. Uh, Heinrich, um, who was the previous pastor here, spoke to us and said, listen, um, you know, things have happened and we, in, on short notice, need, you know, a pastor to go up and take over in Job because my family and I need to come down to Cape Town. Um, and, you know, that was about, I can't remember, about a month odd before before the move had to happen, before Heinrich and them had to move. Um, and we were a very convenient choice because at that stage I was full-time at the Bible school, full-time with Shofar Institute and so on. So I was a pastor without a congregation. 
very convenient, you know, choice. Uh, so Heinrich spoke to us, um, to Rochelle and I, it was a bit of a surprise to us because um, we'd sort of made our plans to be in, in Somerset West and, you know, we had the schools lined up for our kids and all that kind of stuff. But then the next morning around 3 o'clock, God woke me up and I went to the kitchen and I was just praying and, and reading the Bible and, and God took me to the book of Haggai uh, where um, they'd started building the foundation of the temple and so on, but then they'd stopped at some stage and, and the building had to continue. And Haggai was prophesying and say, continue building, you know. And, and, and if, you, if you continue building, I will bless you. And that's what God basically said to me. He said, a good work has been started and I want you to go and continue that good work. And if you go and build, I will bless you. See, Heinrich asked us, but God called us. And in the end, that's why we came. It's because... We felt God had called us to be here. And it's good to know that, that, that we're here because God wants us to be here, because it's part of God's plan and God's purpose for us. So, so God chose Elisha before Elijah even knew about him and called him. He only used Elijah to call Elisha. So we see the divine... Um, the call is divinely initiated, but the call is also divinely empowered. If you look carefully, in, in verse 16, God says to Elijah, go and anoint Elisha. And when Elijah actually comes to Eli, El, Elisha, he throws his cloak over him. In other words, those two are basically the same thing. Elijah is anointing Elisha as his successor by throwing his cloak over him. So what does anoint mean? Literally, when you anoint someone, you take oil and you, you anoint them with oil, but that oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, right? The oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So when Elijah was throwing his cloak over Elisha, it was as though he was saying, may the Spirit, God's Spirit that is upon me, come upon you in the same way, so that you become my prophetic successor. And, and the Bible actually in other places, I'm not going to read it now, but... It, for those of you who are making notes, you can check 1 Chronicles 12, 18, 2 Chronicles 24, 20. And then you have the example of, of Gideon in Judges 6, verse 34, um, where it says in all of those cases, and the Spirit of God came upon. That's the way the, the NIV translated. But literally what it says is the Spirit of God wrapped himself around or clothed those people, those prophets or those leaders. And that's one of the ways in which the Bible speaks about God anointing us, is God clothing us with himself. And that's what's happening here. In other words, Elisha's calling is not just divinely initiated, it's divinely empowered. And this, this cloak thing is important. You remember on, on the mountain when Elisha comes out, and he hears the, the still small voice, he comes out, what does he do? He throws his cloak over his over his face. Okay. Um, here, he takes his cloak and he puts it over Elisha to call him. Later on, at the end of Elisha's, Elijah's ministry, he rolls up his cloak and strikes the Jordan. It parts. He walks through. The chariots of fire take him up. You know, Elisha sees it, you know, the horsemen and the chariots of Israel, he says, and then he picks up the cloak that Elijah dropped and he walks back to the Jordan. He does the same thing, rolls it up and strikes the water. It parts and he walks through. What do the, the guys of the school of the prophets say when they see that? The spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. The same anointing. Because he asks for a double portion. He says, I want a double portion. I want to be your true heir, your firstborn in a spiritual sense heir, and, and be your equal. He says, um, they say that the spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. Can you see how this cloak is functioning symbolically? And likewise, when we get called by God, that calling of God on our lives requires the power of God in our lives, the Spirit of God upon us as a cloak, wrapping us in His power in order to fulfill His calling. Um, but then there's a, there's a difference between what happens between Elijah and Elisha. So in a sense, God is saying, go back the way you came. Go back to your old ways. Geographically, go back the way you came, but also go back to your old ways. And what were those old ways? The ways of discipleship, which 
which Elijah had left behind. So he goes and he starts discipling Elisha. But he only has one disciple whom he anoints. You see, here's the difference. That was under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, I mean, and this already starts under the old covenant. Um, maybe you can just quickly bring up Numbers 11 verse 29, where Moses actually articulates this desire. He says, but Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? Because he's this special servant of the Lord, anointed man of God. And then he just prayed for 70 others to receive the Spirit. And they were prophesying. And even two of the elders who weren't, two of the 70 who weren't, physically with Moses received the spirit in in the in the camp and started prophesying in the camp and Joshua was all jealous and saying you know stop make them stop because they're also prophesying and Moses says are you jealous for for my sake I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them so when God puts his spirit on us that makes us prophets in a very real sense and he says I wish that all the Lord's people had the Lord's Spirit and, and were prophets and, and would prophesy. About a century later, Joel prophesies, and I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And Jesus fulfills that in Acts chapter 2, when, uh, I'm not going to read it now, but it says, after those days, in other words, in the end times, I, Yahweh, will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then Jesus, who is Yahweh, who became flesh, pours out his spirit on all flesh, and they prophesy. In other words, in contrast to Elijah, who just has one disciple, who anoints just one disciple and one successor, Jesus anoints many, all of us, as his spiritual successors. Um, let me just read you... just. One or two verses, just so you can clearly see the connection. Let me just read you one or two verses from Acts chapter 2. Verse verse 17 says, In the last days God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, literally all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Note the prominence of the prophesying. Uh, And then in verse um, 38 when, when Peter, when they ask, you know, how, what must we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. For all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise of salvation, the promise of the Spirit, is for all whom the Lord our God will call. And he calls under the new covenant all his people in that way. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're called. Now say to them, so am I. (laughs) (laughs) Just one thing before I move on from this point that I just want to emphasize. I wish I had more time. Um, Elijah specifically calls Elisha out of what we would, in modern terms, call secular work into what is sometimes called sacred work. Okay, I don't like that distinction. I think it's a very dangerous and very unbiblical distinction. But in, in, in um, you know, typical popular language, we, we often do that. So we often think in terms of the sacred and the secular, um, and say, but. but you know, if I get a calling, then does that mean I'm like Elisha? I must come out of, I must, I must leave plowing in order to prophesy. Is that what it means? No. I mean, in that text alone, it shows us that God's calling is not just to full-time ministry, if I can call it. Because remember, he, he, he tells Elijah to anoint three people. Azahel as a king, Jehu as a king, and then Elisha as a prophet. So clearly God's anointing is for, for government, serving in governmental structures as much as it is to prophesy. Okay? And in the previous chapter, in, in, in Kings 18, we see a great example um, of a man who is serving God very devotedly in a very secular, hostile environment. You have Obadiah, who was um, Ahab the terrible king's um, palace administrator. 
And it says twice in that passage that he feared the Lord greatly. Since his youth, he feared the Lord. And he's working in this very hostile environment as a devout believer. So much so that when Jezebel starts killing the prophets of Yahweh, he takes a hundred of them and hides them in two caves, 50 in each cave, and feeds them. He uses, you know, obviously it was a very high-ranking position, but he uses the wealth that he, that he gets from this position to take care of God's people, to feed this hundred prophets. In the context of a drought, where there was probably hyperinflation, this guy sacrificially feeds a hundred prophets with bread and water, hiding them in a cave, risking his own life to hide these guys. That's the example, and that shows you God's call, God had called Obadiah to be Ahab, the terrible evil king's palace administrator, and to do good in a very difficult and very hostile environment. So when I'm talking about calling, please don't get the idea that I'm saying that all of you, in order to respond to God's calling, must come into full-time ministry. Not at all. There might be a handful of you that are called in, in that way, like I am and like Elisha was. But all of us are called to serve God where we are and can do amazing good, great good, where we are, even if it's in a hostile environment, even if it's in a very secular environment, even if it's in a place where the prophets of God are being killed and are not really welcome, you are called to be such a prophet for God right there. I know it's dangerous. I know it's sometimes uncomfortable. God's calling isn't always comfortable, but it's always worth it. Okay, so we said that we looked at um, the great need for, for, for calling, the, the true nature of calling. Now let's just quickly, very briefly look at um, the right response to calling. Uh, just a few things that I want to highlight about how Elisha responds. And I, and, I, and I just want to say again, his response really is exemplary. We can learn a lot from how he responds. Firstly, his response is, he responds uh, immediately. We must respond immediately. Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah. As soon as he realized what was going on, he immediately responded. He, he ran after Elijah. So when God calls you, respond immediately. Don't wait. Don't wait. You can figure things out as you go along, but don't wait. Don't wait until you understand God's calling before you respond to it. Don't wait until you are convinced that God will provide for, your, for, for the calling on your life before you respond to it. Where God guides, he provides. But he doesn't first provide and then you shouldn't wait for the provision. It's as you go that he provides. So respond immediately. And then respond lovingly. Um, Elisha says he wants to go and kiss his parents goodbye. And so often, you know, we make the mistake. Um, and, I, and I know some of you are thinking of other verses that seem to sort of contradict this now. But I'm going to get to those, don't worry. Especially the, the one in, in Luke chapter 9, the end of Luke chapter 9. Um, he says, can I... First go and kiss my mother and father goodbye. And so often when the calling of God comes on us, we like, you know, my parents, you know, they're so stupid, they're so backward, they're, so, they're such nominal Christians, they won't understand this, you know, and, and they'll probably sort of oppose this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and we're so tempted sometimes to react in arrogance and pride and lovelessness. But Elisha goes back. And he honors his father and mother. And he kisses them goodbye. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us whether they're pleased about the calling or whether they're not so pleased, you know. Um, sometimes your parents won't understand your calling. But still love them enough to sort of just tell them that this is what I'm doing and not fight with them about it, even if they don't understand it. Respond lovingly towards them. Okay? He responded generously. He took those 12 yoke of oxen, 24 oxen, he, and, and, and he, he made food, for, it says, for the people, not just for the servants who were driving the oxen. This is for the whole village. He responded very generously. Now, obviously, the Lord had led him like the Lord had led other people, like the rich young ruler. He says, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. God has done that in the past. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, he was a very rich young man, very wild, you know, promiscuous young man, but very rich. And God led him to sell all of his possessions and to follow him in, in chastity and poverty. Now, God doesn't do that with everyone, praise God. <laughs> 
But God does that sometimes. And when he does, he'd obviously done this with Elisha. He'd obviously laid on Elisha's heart, to, you know, to, to, to get rid of those things. But, but look at it, how generously he responds. He cooks the meat and he gives a massive feast. I mean, at, at, just think about when the prodigal son returns in, in, the, in the well-known parable in Luke chapter 15. They slaughter a fattened calf for him. And that was a big celebration. Now compare that to 24 oxen. That's a massive celebration. I mean, this is probably the biggest celebration that anyone in that village has ever seen. You see how generous Elisha is being with what generosity is responding. Then he responded very decisively. And this is one of the most important points I want you to see. He not only slaughtered the oxen, but he used the yolks and stuff as firewood to cook the, the meat. What was he doing by burning his yolks? He was sending a very clear message to himself and to everyone around him, everyone who knew him, I'm not coming back. I'm not returning to this life. I have received the call of God. I'm not going to go and try it. I'm going to do it even if it costs my life. And was he was burning his bridges, burning his yokes. He said, there's no coming back. There's no returning to this life that, I've, that I'm leaving behind now. I'm responding with single-minded decisiveness. This is what God has called me for. There's no looking back. And Jesus actually refers to this passage in Luke chapter 9, at the end of the chapter. Uh, th there are three different guys who come to Jesus, and, and Jesus uh, the one says, you know, let me go and bury my father. You know, I'll the other one says, I'll follow you wherever you do. And Jesus seems to respond negatively to all three of them. And the third one, in verse 61, it, it says, still another uh, said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Can you see this is exactly what Elisha said? Okay, And then look at what Jesus replies. He replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Elisha was also plowing when he got caught. Can, can you see, this must be an allusion by Jesus to that um, instance. Jesus seems to respond negatively, but, but notice that Jesus doesn't say, no, don't go back. What does he say? He says, if you go back to greet your parents, do it like Elisha. Can you see that? In other words... The danger is there that when you go back to greet your parents, they're going to convince you not to respond to the calling and not to come and follow me. Because, I mean, calling is risky. It's a risky business. There's a lot that you give up. And often parents just want what's best for their kids in the natural. You can understand that. No, 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 no. Just go and get a degree first, you know, so you have something to fall back on. Well, why do you want to give up this, you know, great job? You know, for probably for a couple of years after I became a pastor, my, my, my mother would ever so often contact me and say, I saw this great chemical engineering job in the newspaper. You know, don't you want to apply? <laughs> and, and, you know, as a, any good parent, you know, who wants the best for, for, for their kids and, and doesn't necessarily understand the calling, she, she was just trying to do what she thought was best for me or get me to do what she thought was best for me. She's, she hasn't been doing that for the last couple of years. I think she, she sort of, you know, understands now that, you know, I've, I've burned my yokes. <laughs> I'm not going back to that life. This is what I'm called to do. I'm called to be a pastor and to, to teach people and to take care of people, to love people and to lead them. I, I, I know I can make more money as a chemical engineer, but I don't want more money. I want to fulfill God's calling on my life. So we must respond decisively and burn our yokes. We must also respond in two other ways. Respond by, by becoming. It says, after he'd done this, he went and he followed Elijah. And that followed there means the same when, when, when it says that we must follow Christ. It means that we must not only follow them physically or follow the direction they set, but follow their way of life. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become a follower of his lifestyle. It's a, in other words, you respond by becoming. 
That's a, that, that's a very important one. And, and that response of becoming to, to the one who calls us, who is greater than Elijah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is a universal call to become, which is the same for all of us. And that's why there can be unity between us. It's because we are all called to become like Jesus. Just like Elisha, in, a very, in, in many ways, had to become like Elijah by following him. But then also, there's something that's entirely, where that is the same for everyone, there's something that is different for everyone. It says, and he became his servant, and he became his, basically his, his, his successor as prophet. There's a call to being, which is the same for everyone, and then there's a call to doing, which is unique for everyone. Each of us has the same call to be like Jesus, but each of us has a very unique calling to do for Jesus. And that's why the body is such a beautiful, because we're all called to both unity and diversity with one another. Such a beautiful unity in diversity, just like God. Three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A unity in diversity in unity. And we as the body of Christ are a unity, the same becoming, in a diversity, a different doing, um, but a unity as well, the same becoming. So, just in closing, if we go and add up the genealogies of all the different kings to whom Elijah and Elisha ministered, we find out that Elisha probably served Elijah for about 18 years as his attendant, as his servant. In other words, he responded very humbly and in service. Remember, he was a rich, powerful young man who had a lot of resources and a lot of people serving him. And he gave up people serving him to go and serve Elijah and become his attendant. And he did it for 18 years before he himself was released fully into ministry. And in those 18 years, he was pretty much in the background. You know, washing Elijah's feet, cooking food for him, you know, whatever. And he responded in humility in that way. And so, can you see why I say that Elisha's response was exemplary to his calling? Um, just like, and, and, and in the same way, we need to respond to Jesus and say, even though you've called, you, 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 no matter what you've called me to, I'm going to burn my yokes, metaphorically speaking. I'm not going back to the old life. Even if God calls you to do what you're already doing, you've got to say, I'm going to do it differently. I'm no longer going to do it for me. I'm going to do it for him. This is no longer me just pursuing a career. This is me fulfilling my calling. And it's powerful when that happens. And in the end, Elisha ended up doing everything that Elijah did and then some. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. In John 14 verse 12 he says, Whoever believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father and I send the Spirit. And that is the great privilege that we have. We have such a calling on our lives. You have such a calling on your life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't think that calling was just for guys like Elijah and Elijah. It's for each one of us. It's for you. And you might say, yes, but Henny, you don't know me. You know, I'm not competent for this calling. Neither were they. That's why there's the cloak. That's why there's the Holy Spirit. You know, you might say, but, but Henny, you don't know me. You know, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really have the character, you know, for that kind of calling. Neither did they. I mean, we've been through Elijah's story. I hope that one of the things that you can see about Elijah was that he was far from perfect. He had this little problem with lying amongst others. And this little problem with uh, self-pity and, and, and self-importance, you know. He was just like us. In fact, that's exactly what James chapter 5 says. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He was human just like us. He had faults just like us. And yet God still called him. He was, he was sitting suicidal under a broom tree. And God nursed him back to health and renewed his calling. 
He was a man just like us. And yet God called him. If God can use Elijah and Elisha, He can use you and me as well. By by the same Spirit that empowered them. And some of you are thinking now, some of you are thinking now, you're still like a little skeptical. Yes, Eddie, you know, I can, I can, I can see that there's a calling on your life and I can see that there's a calling on, you know, whoever else's life, but I'm not so sure about me. Be sure about it. God has called you. That's, that's exactly what Acts chapter 2 verse 40 says. Let me read that to you again in closing. The promise is for you and your children and all, for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And that's why Peter says in his epistle that we are a kingdom of priests. Notice, not a kingdom with priests, a kingdom of priests. Because every single one of us have been called. You have been called. Whether you struggle to believe it or not, you have been called. And I want to appeal to you. You are called by one who is greater than Elijah. Much greater. You're called by Jesus himself, who is Yahweh, who came in the flesh. Let us also respond in the exemplary way that Elijah responded. Because of this great calling on our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. I just want us just just close your eyes and just just focus on the Lord for a moment. And if you at all sometimes struggle to believe that you are called or feel like you are called, I just want you to just I'm not going to call you forward, but I just want you to just raise your hands just to the Lord, just in a in a gesture of surrender. And just raise your hands to the Lord. Um, no matter what you do or, 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 or who you are, whether you're a mother taking care of your kids at home, whether you're a businessman um, you know, trying to create jobs and, and uh, make profit, or whether you're a school teacher, whatever, just, just raise your hands to the Lord. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to pray for us. Father God, you see, you see us, Lord. You see our hearts. You see that sometimes we struggle, Lord God, to to believe that you've called us and to to feel like you've called us. Sometimes, Lord, we we know that we're not worthy, but thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you fulfilled your calling so that even though we are unworthy, we can fulfill our calling, your calling on us. Thank you that you call us, Lord. Thank you that you take the initiative. Thank you that you empower us. And thank you, Lord, that you that you empower us for whatever you've called us to do, whether it's to be a pastor or a plowman or a plumber or a parent. Thank you that you empower us by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was on Elijah and Elisha, the same Spirit that was on Jesus. Thank you that you pour out your Spirit upon us to fulfill your calling on our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we do have ultimate purpose and meaning in our lives. Sam, thank you that there is a cause that we are living for. Thank you that we are living to glorify your name. And thank you, Lord, that you have enabled us, Lord, to give up, like Elisha, to give up whatever we need to give up in order to Respond to your calling on our lives. Lord, I just want to pray for every single person here, especially those whose hands are raised, Lord, who are uncertain about their calling, or, Lord, who struggle to to really believe or feel that they are called. I want to pray, Lord, your blessing over them now in Jesus' name. And I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll minister to them and give them a deep, 
and a lasting and profound sense of calling upon their lives. That you sent them here this morning exactly, Lord, so that they could hear that you have called them. That you do have a purpose for their lives. That you do have something that you've anointed them for. And I pray that you'll reveal that to them, Lord, not just in their heads, but really deep in their hearts. In Jesus' name. Lord, and I pray that as we go this morning, Lord God, that each of us will go and go and fulfill our callings. I just, I just want you to just, in your own words, um, just, let's just all of us, let's just raise our, raise our hands to the Lord. And, and let's just thank God for His anointing on our lives and ask Him to increase it. Just in your own words. Just thank Him for His anointing on you and ask Him to increase it. Ask for a double portion. Thank you, Lord, that you anoint us with your presence, with your power. Thank you that you wrap us in the cloak of your presence, that you clothe us in yourself, that we, can put, that we have put on Christ by putting on his spirit, and that we can walk out here clothed in you to represent you, to be, as it were, your successors, through whom you minister to this world and through whom you fulfill your calling in this world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg. Gave his life.